Hello loves. In today's episode, I get to talk with Daisy Hernandez, a Latina who incorporates her spiritual practice with her writing and her activism. For her, they are all one and the same, intertwined. One cannot be separate from the other. I invite you to listen to our conversation in light of the current moment that we're in right now with the upheaval of our cultural fabric, with the protests going on across the country. And in this conversation, perhaps you can find ways to just be with what is happening and to listen to your inner wisdom so that you may know what action you need to take, what action feels right for you, what action you can do to make a difference. So let's get on with the episode. Welcome to Vinyasa in Verse, the podcast where we connect mind, body, and spirit through poetry and practice. I'm Leslie Ann Hobayan. Together, we'll explore different ways of connecting with our innermost selves and how to tap into the flow of the universe. Because once that happens, anything is possible. Your best life starts now. Episode of Vinyasa in Verse. How are you on this beautiful day? I hope everything is well in your inner space. I know there's a lot of things happening out in the outer space, but just take a moment here to just find a moment of beauty uh, for all that's going on to be present and to just breathe. Um, For today's episode, I have a very special guest. Um, I'm going to read a little bit about her before I tell you her name. Um, She's the author of the award-winning memoir, A Cup of Water Under My Bed, and co-editor of Colonize This, Young Women of Color on Today's Feminism, which is an amazing anthology. Um, I was actually introduced to her through this anthology, which I found in um, Bookshop Santa Cruz all so many years ago. Um, She's also the former editor of Color Lines Magazine and has reported for The Atlantic, The New York Times, and Slate, and has written for NPR's All Things Considered and Code Switch. Her essays and fiction have appeared in Asterix, Bellingham Review, Brevity, Dogwood, Fourth Genre, Gulf Coast, Juked, and Rumpus, among other journals. A contributing editor for the Buddhist magazine Tricycle, she is an assistant professor at the Creative Writing Program at Miami University in Ohio. Not to be confused with Miami University in Florida. (laughs) She's in Ohio. So I want to welcome to the show Daisy Hernandez. Yay! (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah, and one of the reasons I um, I wanted to to speak with you is because of your connection with Tricycle um, and with that um, that essay that you wrote recently about being back in the body, being back in the practice. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that, um, and I'm sure other things <laughs> that are very obvious. But to um, to start our episode, I will flip the roulette of poems from this book called The Gift by Hafiz, a great Sufi mystic poet. 
And, oh, and this one is called Now is the Time. Now is the time to know that all you do is sacred. Now, why not consider a lasting truth, truce with yourself and God? Now is the time to understand that all your ideas of right and wrong were just a child's training wheels to be laid aside when you can finally live with veracity and love. Hafiz is a divine envoy whom the beloved has written a holy message upon. My dear, please tell me, why do you still throw sticks at your heart and God? What is it in that sweet voice inside that incites you to fear? Now is the time for the world to know that every thought and action is sacred. This is the time for you to deeply compute the impossibility that there is anything but grace. Now is the season to know that everything you do is sacred. Ooh. Beautiful. That cannot Beautiful. be better timing. <laughs> so what, um, for you, what speaks to you in that poem? It doesn't have to be necessarily a specific moment. It could be a message, but what are you, what are you feeling right now? Oh gosh, the image that stood out to me was about throwing sticks at yourself and at God um, because, well, it's just, it's such a vivid image. And also, cause I think that we do that a lot. And I think our culture um, encourages that berating of ourselves, you know, like not good enough, you know? And I think mm -hmm. right now during this time where we're having pr all these protests about the murder of George Floyd and so many other African-Americans in our country, there's that stick throwing as well with our, like ourselves. Like if we're, if we're not able to go out and protest, we're berating ourselves for that. Um, if we're worried about our, you know, our children going out there or our friends, young friends going out there, we're berating ourselves for worrying. And not, you know, there's just sort of like always this kind of um, not good enough. And then of course, um, I don't know, it makes me think of the opposite as well in yeah. terms of, in terms of physical, like literally, not just the not just the image, but the literally throwing sticks, throwing water bottles, you know, uh, rioting. Um, and I was at a meditation group this past Sunday, led by Gina Sharp. And at, during the discussion, one of the young women talked about uh, that she sees the rioting as an act of love, actually, and mm -hmm. that love defends love defends itself and defends the ones that you love. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a perspective I hadn't considered. And so it ties in with that as well. Um, but yeah, just a beautiful image too of like, especially the part, especially that says we throw sticks at yourself and God as well. Right. So like also that I don't think we always necessarily make the time and the space um, to honor the sacred in our lives, right? Or we think that the sacred has to exist very separately from our activism and it doesn't, it can actually be the same, one and the same. So yeah, yeah beautiful. I hope you'll send me a copy of that. Oh yeah, um, yeah, I need I to get the book. <laughs> yeah, I definitely yeah. will. Um, but as you were speaking, I was thinking about that that sentence, that, that line of at myself and at God. So it's, it can be seen as both, right? Where if God is within us, we're, we're hitting both ourselves and God, but then if we're throwing sticks at God, um, then we are lost, you know, that we've, we've acknowledged this separation. And so maybe that those, those sticks being thrown is out of frustration in experiencing this separation. Um, 
but but yeah, I, I as I was reading that, I was I was thinking about um, the current climate that we're in um, with the protests and and there's a lot of um, action. And the poem talks about every action is sacred. And so I, I think that that's an interesting way to look at things. So I don't know, is that something that you're you're seeing? Is that a perspective you're seeing? Because you mentioned um, that this teacher, Gina Sharp, had framed the actions of the protest as actions of love. And so how are you responding to that? How are you, you know, understanding that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me correct that. It actually was not Gina Sharp herself. Oh, it was one, it was okay. one of the young women during the discussion. Gina Sharp actually framed the. Uh, this was a Buddhist meditate Buddhist meditation talk, and she actually framed it. Her talk around grief, mm-hmm. um, and she named um, I think about a hundred uh, black women and men and children who have been killed by the police, and she rang the bell. Um, after naming, after each name, um, for us to, you know, really come into acknowledgement of their humanity um, and all of that was lost with their lives. Um, So it was interesting, actually, because Gina Sharp was talking about it in the context of grief, but this um, young woman during the discussion was the one who brought up love, uh, which was not something that I had considered um, because I was thinking more about the rage and despair when we go out to burn buildings, um, you know, to throw things at police, you know, and I understand that rage and I've never quite thought of rage as love. And so there was an interesting, I'm still, as you can tell, I'm still sort of sifting through it, through it all. Um, and I think that many people are taking very sacred actions right now. Um, so I think that a lot of the protests are very much sacred actions. Um, I don't condone violence, um, even if it's coming from a place of love. So right. I don't actually think that the burning and the attacks um, are like I didn't agree with this young woman necessarily. So that will you know that, but but for me, like part of my spiritual practice is um, is holding it all, you know, and taking it in and seeing if it is going to shift something within me. And like right now, I don't agree with her, but I love that she turned my thoughts upside down. And maybe tomorrow I will agree with her actually, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think a lot, a lot of sacred action is happening. I think people who are donating to bail funds um, are taking sacred action as well. People who, you know, yesterday I was on social media and one of my friends was sharing news stories just from our local community here in Ohio. And to me, that felt like a very sacred action to share what's happening in a local context. Um, Not assuming that everyone knows what's happening in your community. Um, To me, that feels very sacred. People that are out there telling stories about what's happening, photographing, documenting, that documentation is also very much a sacred action. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of that gets lost in the media. Um, You know, the media is not necessarily our friend, but, um, but it's, I don't know. I just I think about this the sacredness and how how interesting the media might be if that were to come to the forefront of their reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, how that might shift um, our lenses, our perspectives of what's happening and, and the narratives that we're creating around this movement. Um, so there's a lot there's a lot here to um, to discuss. And I and it's funny because when I was mentally preparing for this conversation because. As my listeners know, I never prepare anything ahead of time. I just, you know, trust that what we talk about is what needs to happen. Um, but I was thinking about um, 
how to bring this current moment in our time into this space where we can talk about tools that people can use to um, kind of ground themselves and find their place in it instead of listening to other people, but turning inward to figure out, all right, what is my part in this? And how can I, you know, take action in a way that feels like it's honoring me um, and my, and my, you know, my higher self? Um, I don't know if you have any, I don't want to say advice, but maybe some tools that you can offer or maybe what you're doing um, in your own life for this. Because as a spiritualist, as a spiritual person, it's it's a lot, I mean, both of us are, and I feel that those who are not look from the outside in like, oh, what are those guys doing? Do you know what I mean? Going <laughs> <laughs> home all the time, like, what does that do, you know? So I wanted to see if you could speak to that, um, that kind of action that, that happens. The, you're talking about like the spiritual action. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess, well, yeah, I guess that's interesting because um, maybe you already have to be in that place where you believe that it has value. So I think for me, that was a journey actually of many, many years of yeah. coming to a place where I believe that um, sitting in silence, um, for example, in my tradition and sending loving kindness um, to everyone, <laughs> including people I don't want to send it to necessarily, has really deep value um, because at the very least, um, it puts me in a place of peace and of love so that any other action I take might be coming from that place. So that feels very foundational to me so that then what I share on social media might be coming from that place. I cannot tell you how often, and I do it, you know, I get on Twitter and like, wah, 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 you know, um, <laughs> it's and you to to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, um, very human of us, you know, but for me, I know, I know that when I sit in that place of allowing myself silence and serenity, um, I'm more likely to come from a place of understanding and love so that even when I go to a meditation talk and I hear someone saying something, I can take it in even if I don't agree with it completely and even if I just haven't thought of it before. And so I feel like it also opens me up to different perspectives and possibilities. Um, and and I, you know, I think it's like in terms of activism, you have to give from a full cup. Ideally, <laughs> you give from a full cup. And so I feel like for me, the spiritual practice ensures that I have a full cup from which to give. Um, and also helps me to navigate through the emotional terrain. Like I have not been to the protests. Um, I don't feel safe in terms of COVID-19 to be out there. Right. Um, and that was really hard. That was really difficult. And I feel like for me, the spiritual practice um, makes it possible for me to make that decision with a lot of clarity and confidence. Um, as opposed to making that decision and then beating myself up or having guilt about it or berating myself. Yeah, exactly. Throwing that stick at myself. Um, and, and it also kind of, I think like if we're in for myself, if I'm clear within myself and I'm peaceful within myself, then I can also make decisions about what actions I do want to take. If, um, if I do want to donate money to a bail fund or if I want to share stories or document what's happening in some way, then it kind of provides that clarity. For, to, so yeah. for me, it feels so foundational, I guess, is what I would say. It feels so foundational. And it yeah. also, I guess, like something that I'd like to share along these lines, too, is that one of the things that I've been doing is um, 
I've been very slowly preparing to watch the video of George Floyd's murder. I've seen little snippets, you know, like a few seconds here as where it's being covered on social media or when the news is presenting it. But I haven't sat down to fully watch it because Mm -hmm. one of the things that I'm grappling with spiritually is that this is a person being murdered um, and, and being murdered because he's a black person. And I should not, I don't want to consume it the way that I consume other videos online, you know? And so I've been, so one of the things that I've been thinking, my partner and I have been talking about is um, lighting candles, doing a loving kindness meditation, and then sitting to watch this in a way that feels respectful um, and that allows a space for grief as well. Cause I think part of what happens too is that when we consume it as we would consume other media, it's hard to have that space for all of your emotions mm. to happen and to exist. Um, it, it's, yeah, I mean, it's over, it can be very overwhelming. It can be just infuriating. Um, and I think a lot of us skip grief and I, or I know for myself, I'll say like, I'll skip grief and go to the despair or the anger or the pushback, you know, yeah. um, and kind of skip that emotion. That's, that's very difficult to deal with. Or to yeah. just be in. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad that you shared that because I have not seen the video and um and that's intentional because I don't know, um, I mean, for reasons that are very similar to your own, where it's like, you know, I don't want to be this spectator, you know, just consuming something. But at the same time to witness something like that is very intense. Um, and so I I don't know if I necessarily wanna open myself up to that kind of grief, right? Yeah. Um, So I think that your um, approach uh, has given me an idea of how I might be able to to watch it because I feel that it's important to bear witness, Mm -hmm. um, which is different from consumption. Mm -hmm. So um, I appreciate you sharing that because there are some who might be listening that, you know, they're in that same situation. Um, And and this is a an a sacred way of bearing witness and approaching um, to see what, what happened. Um, and then to allow that space for grief mm-hmm. because um, yeah, too often we just skip to outrage. Um, and then that just messes us up inside. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> That's so good. So, you know, I want, while you were talking, I was thinking to myself, um, you know, I don't know, and this is, you know, up to you how much you'd, you'd like to share, but uh, I'm not familiar with your path to this spiritual place that you're at now. So um, I'd like for you to share that um, because I'm curious about it as a fellow woman of color um, and, you know, myself as a Catholic and coming to this place of spirituality that is not familiar to my Catholic upbringing has been a journey for myself. So I'm wondering about what your journey has been like. to be not only um, a woman of color, but also a queer woman of color and how spirituality fits into these identities that you, um, that you embody. Yeah. Wow. Big question. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I love it. Um, I've never, I don't know that I've ever been asked to describe my spiritual journey. So that's beautiful. Um, I was, yeah, so I was actually, I'm glad you mentioned Catholicism. I was, uh, my mother's side of the family is practicing Catholics. And so, yep, 
I actually describe myself as having been, as a child, a super Catholic. I just loved being Catholic, loved church, loved my children's Bible, um, loved confessing my sins. That what? was totally how I grew up. <laughs> yeah, I, I loved it. I just loved every part of it. And I think what I realize now for myself is that um, you know, I was growing up in a family that was very much afflicted by alcoholism and different types of violence and abuse. And so for me, actually, the, the deep structure that Catholicism had and all the rituals was very, very comforting um, mm-hmm. for me and actually gave me a sense of stability and grounding in the world that I really, really valued. Um And I know that's not the experience of everyone with Catholicism. I know people who have been abused within the Catholic Church, um, where the church is very much a source of pain. And so I realized, too, that um, that very positive experience is actually an incredible spiritual privilege, kind of privilege, to have had such a positive experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I moved away from Catholicism. I talk about it in my memoir, Cup of Water Under My Bed, um, when I began to, uh, when I was in high school and realized that there were different interpretations of the New Testament and um, and realized that, yeah, everything I had known was not uh, written. And so actually, I, I think there was a wonderful part in the poem that you read about rights and wrongs, that yeah. it's a child's perspective that there's everything is that there's either a right or a wrong and there's nothing in between. And um, so in high school, I had that moment of like, I, I had thought Catholicism was it, the, the you know, the the sun rose and set with Jesus and the church and so forth. There were no other religions. <laughs> yeah, no other religions. Yeah, we were we were very much. It was funny because we were a Latina family in a predominantly white Irish um, Italian neighborhood. So Catholicism was actually a point of connection with these white families. It was really interesting, and um, and I don't. You know, it's interesting because I I always have to mention this. Um, I. I don't exactly know how this happened. I'm still kind of grappling with, but I, I never associated um, Catholicism with um, with homophobia or with anti-sexuality. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I, I was like so deeply rooted in like Jesus loved me exactly how I am. And at that age, I wasn't aware of any same-sex desires. I thought it was very. We had a woman in the neighborhood who had left her husband for another woman. I thought it was so romantic, <laughs> like <laughs> she wanted to be with her true love. So I think I might have like I did read a lot of romance novels. So I may have like melded romance novels and the Bible together somehow. <laughs> so. I actually, yeah, you know, I, I was not someone, um, I never, never struggled with self-hatred around my sexuality or my gender mm. because of my religion. And that is a very unusual kind of situation. Mm. Um, again, like I, I'm still trying to like sort out why that was. Um, by all means, I should have had negative connotations. Well, and then speak to the people that were around you as far as the, their way of pra- practicing Catholicism. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, um, I grew up, I was raised by several aunties, three aunties and my mom. And, um, and it was, you know, no one ever outrightly spoke about liberation theology. But when I look back, I think we were definitely influenced by liberation theology. And so there was an idea that, um, that religion could have an impact, like beyond the physical church, right, in the way you lived. And, in the sort of economics and the institutions that we inhabit. So yeah, I just like 
Jesus and Mary were so cool. You know, that was like, look out for you because you didn't yeah, get absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I, it's interesting you mentioned that because I also think I did have some incredible teachers in my elementary school. Mm. And I think that they were very much came from this place of Jesus and God are love and Mary is love. And so it, it was just, I just remember like a deep sense of love. And, um, and then I came across Buddhism. Um, it was actually after, no, it was actually during college. I was uh, working at my public library where all good things happen, I hope. Um, and yeah, there was a Buddhist magazine. And the reason that it's, you know, I, I picked up and I opened it up and I read an article or an essay by um, Pema Chodron, very, very fa famous, popular Buddhist teacher who a lot of people adore. Yes, exactly. <laughs> For the listeners, I'm holding up her newest book, Welcoming the Unwelcome. So go check it yeah. out. Yeah, she she was, she like for so many, many people in the U.S., she was very fundamental. And mm. um, and that did change my, my spiritual journey because what I was so surprised is, by is that she spoke in that essay that I read, or it was like a Dharma talk translated. She talked about um, that we don't have to get rid of our anger, you know, that it's a part of us and it's part of that jewel within us, right? And that it might be protecting our soft spot, um, but we don't have to push it away, you know? And so it was, so it was, that was my introduction to Buddhism was that like, I don't actually have to get rid of anything. Like I don't have to make myself into a better person. Um, Cause you're already that better person. Yeah, I'm already that better person. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of has, that kind of got me on this journey. And then it's been, um, yeah, I don't know the sort of like over the years on and off, um, relationship with Buddhism and then, um, yeah, and I guess I mean I've also had like my spirit my spiritual path is fluid just like my sexuality. <laughs> There's I think a relationship. We all should live. <laughs> yes. Um so so I did my father practiced Ocha, which is um Regla de Ocha, which is an Afro-Cuban religion. Um and I was initiated into that um a number of years ago. Um and that's like another religious tradition that I grew up with. And that might also explain part of like part of my own, my own like kind of um, experience with love around religion is that like my mother was very accepting of his faith and so were pretty much my aunties were accepting of it as well and so there was intention in that way yeah. and um, and then at some point I joined 12-step I joined Al-Anon which is for families and loved ones of um, alcoholics and then I joined a bunch of other 12-step programs um, so I'm definitely like a 12 step first. That's a big part of my, I don't usually talk about that because it's an anonymous program. And so I honor that, um, or I have so far, I don't know if I will forever. <laughs> um, but yeah, so all like my path is just kind of like all over. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, I mean, I know that it's an anonymous program, but it's important to know that, that you're coming from that community also because you know I haven't I haven't participated in that community but I know from people around me who have talked about it that it is very much steeped in a kind of spirituality um, and so it makes sense that um, that has also fed into where you are now um, in your spiritual practices um, you know I um, I listened to this um, this podcast every morning with um, one of my yoga teachers um, it's called wisdom of the sages and read um, from the um, this book, the Srimad Bhagavatam, and it um, it tells stories of all the Hindu gods and goddesses, and and their you know teachings in there. But what's interesting is a lot of the people that come and join in on the Zoom calls 
are people who have been through the 12 step program and they're sharing, you know, all the 12 steps are totally relatable to these spiritual practices. And so I think it's interesting that, I don't know, part of me feels like maybe the 12 step program could be renamed something else. (laughs) (laughs) Necessarily just for alcoholics and, and addicts and recovering people, you know, that it's something that everyone can use. Um, so, so yeah, I just, I, abs- I absolutely agree with that. I've, I, and I've, it's interesting cause I thought about that. I thought about how could, um, how could the 12 steps be reworked in such a way that it's not necessarily focused on a very specific problem, but that, because it does become a way of life. And I absolutely like my way of life is definitely like 12 step. Um, so there is a, there is a moment where it shifts from the problem to becoming a way of living your life. That's very spiritual. Um, and it kind of goes hand in hand with, um, you know, just my experiences of Catholicism as a child, where there was a lot of love, and um, I didn't grow up in like a fire and brimstone kind of, you know, church. Um, yeah, I was very fortunate, and so, and I've, and that's also been my experience of twelve step as well, because I came into it when I was living in California, actually in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So I, the emphasis was really um, very much on having a spiritual life, however, however it made sense to you. Um, and that is different than because now I've lived in all parts of the country, including the Midwest and other parts of the country. And I've also gone to 12 step meetings in other countries. Um, and they sometimes can be very focused on a Judeo-Christian um, mm. tradition, actually. And so I know that, at, you know, I had the privilege of coming into it in you know, sometimes people call the San Francisco area like a little India because there's sort of like every kind of spiritual faith and tradition is being explored there. And so I was lucky that I came into it in that space. Um, And sometimes it can be hard for people um, to come into it in other parts of the country. But I I agree with you. I think it's, um, yeah, it's a way of life that's very valuable. How amazing would it be if it's like, you know, in school you learn the 12 steps. Like if you're in high school, it's like, here, why don't you follow these things? And not necessarily because you have a problem, but because we just want you to realize your fullest, better self. Yeah. 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 And there's nothing, there's nothing new there. Just the same way that there's really like nothing new in Catholicism or Buddhism, you know, like I was just listening to this Buddhist talk about making amends, which is a very big part as well of 12 step. And I'm just like, Oh my God, you know, it's just, it's all, it's all the same. It's just sort of like, what's the entry point, you know, and what's the language and does that language speak to you and do the traditions and the rituals speak to you? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's so funny because it sounds like your experience, your spiritual journey is very similar to mine where you're pulling from different traditions um, because you're trying to find the entry points that resonate with you, that make sense to you. You yeah. know, because, you know, for example, um, for me, I don't know if I would have um, entered into this understanding of Buddhism had I not started with yoga teacher training, you mm-hmm. know. And I know that Hinduism and Buddhism are very similar so entering that way, I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. And then I'm seeing now the connections to the Catholicism and the, and the Catholic traditions there. Um, so, you know, I, I tell a lot of my, um, my yoga students that um, spiritual, like religion is just all the same. It's just different wording. You know, it's all the same, whether you want to believe it or not. <laughs> but, um, I'm just going to tell you, we're all trying to get to the same place. <laughs> so, I agree. Um, I wanted to ask how writing has come into the spiritual, like, how do those come together for you? 
That's a great question. I guess Does for me, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, for me, you know, I was one of those people who I knew at a very young age that I wanted to be a writer, that that was like my goal on the face of this earth was to be writing and communicating through the written word. And so that, and that in and of itself felt very spiritual to me. Mm. Um, and so there isn't any difference between a spiritual practice and my writing. They're one and the same. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, they're one and the same. I, it became more explicitly spiritual. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think when this happened. You know, it's, technically there was, I think there was a call for an anthology about um, as, how people had been um, impacted by the work of Pema Chodron. And so I had my story of, you know, back in this public library. So I wrote a piece about that and it, I don't think the anthology ended up happening. So I sent it to um, an online spiritual journal and then a wonderful editor at Tricycle named Andrew Cooper saw it and he reached out to me and was like, basically like, I bet you've got some other pieces you want to write. And I was like, I don't know, maybe. Um, <laughs> and it, it started me down that road in terms of being, yeah, in terms of actually writing about my spiritual life, but in terms of like how I see them together, no, they've always been like, yeah, they've always been hand in hand, even when, you know, even when I've written, like, I've written a lot of op-eds, opinion pieces, um, I, they're still, they're all coming from that place of spirituality, of the divine, of, I believe that I can contribute to this world, um, and they're also the same in that, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, um, because I just finished a book, and so I'm in, I'm starting to shift into contemplation mode, um, or reflection on what's happened, and it's like, there's just, Sometimes when I'm writing, there will be this just incredible moment where I feel like I disappear, like the ego disappears. Like I, like it, it, I physically feel this just expansiveness within my body. Um, mm -hmm. I wrote this piece for the, the podcast on being has a blog and I wrote this piece for it based on the book that I just finished. And, um, and when I was writing that, there were just these moments where like certain words would come to me or like a phrasing. And I just felt like that sense of just expansiveness and of just that, that sense of like physically in my body, this is right. Like this is what needs to be told. And, um, and some images came that were really unexpected. And I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And so in those moments, I feel myself like a vessel. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and they're, yeah, it's, it's really the best, you know, it's really, I'm like, oh, this is why I write. Cause you, it just, you, I feel like I'm connected to something larger that I can't quite name and don't have to bother to name and identify and all that. And, right. um, yeah. And show up. It's not yeah. even about like, yeah. what am I going to write about? You just show up and exactly. then it appears. It is the craziest thing. Exactly. Um, I and like it doesn't to happen every single time. It doesn't happen. You know, I would have to say that it doesn't happen every single right. time. Make like 90% of the time, maybe it's not that, but that 10% is really amazing. Um, but I feel like the other 90%, when it's not happening, right, it's an issue of faith, right? Like, oh, but I still feel like this is a spiritual act. I feel like I'm still contributing um, yeah. to the world. And um, yeah. Yeah, I love how you are um, seeing your work, your spiritual work, your writing work as contributing to the larger collective, we'll say. Um, because I know there are some who feel guilty about having a spiritual practice because it's like, oh, I'm just here in my room by myself doing my thing. I'm not really doing anything. You know, that most people have this 
feeling that they need to physically do something, you know, to contribute to whatever it is. Um, and so what I appreciate is that you are seeing your beingness as con- as a contribution to the, to the larger world. Um, and I think that's an important message to get out there um, so that we're not continually beating ourselves with that stick about, you know, well, I don't have any money to donate to the bail fund, so... I feel bad for not having money, so I'm just gonna, you know, wallow in my, you know, self-flagellation. Um, but so, you, go ahead. And yeah, yeah, I think that's such an important point. And you know, what I would say too is that, you know, I only came to that that understanding after trying it the other way, like mm-hmm. thinking, okay, it's not spiritual, and I gotta like do 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 get out there and do do. And and because we were talking about twelve step, one of the things that they say in twelve step is, um, you know, if if you don't think this is the right way for you, then go do more research. And you know, for alcoholics, that means go drink some more. You know, and it's a harsh, it's it's kind of like a harsh um, spiritual message, like go do more research, go 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 get drunk, go get high. Uh, but the idea is that you have to hit some kind of bottom. And what I would say to people too is like, you know, if you don't think that's, you know, that's spiritual, you know, if you feel too guilty about, you know, having a spiritual life, you know, go try it the other way, you know, <laughs> have no spiritual life and see if it works for you. Cause maybe it will. I know many people who do not spend any time on their spiritual life and they are super happy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I have a long list of people in my life who are like that and they're amazing. You know, they have a different journey than the one that I have. I tried that one. And, um, and I found it really difficult. You know, I found that even though I had accomplished a lot and I had done a lot, um, and was connected to people, it didn't feel right to me, you know, um, and it didn't feel fulfilling. Um, Yeah. 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 I think that's, that's the key. It's like, you can be doing all these things and on paper it looks good, but if you're not feeling it on the inside, Mm -hmm. then, then it's like, well, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, and so that's a good, that's a good invitation to, to, allow ourselves to do both you know maybe there's a little bit of doing you know maybe you donate you know some food to the food pantry um but then you're but then also who are you being you know as you're giving that food you know are you giving that food with a a kind of resentment like this is my last loaf of bread but i want to do the good Mm -hmm. thing or are you saying you know i am feeling myself i'm feeling you know full of love and you spoke to this earlier in our conversation is if if you are in a space of love and you are doing those things from that space of love then it's effortless you know then it then being is okay and then the doing is sort of like the icing on the cake mhm absolutely absolutely and i also have a lot of over the years i've had a lot of um women of color in my life and queer women of color who have also pointed out like you know our existence alone is activism. <laughs> you know, when I walk onto a college campus um, as a professor, like my activism is done for the day. You know, the majority <laughs> of students, it's, you know, I teach on a predominantly white campus and the majority of students have not ever had a Latinx professor or teacher. Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, for a long time, I didn't. Um, certainly not through elementary school and high school. And so, so just, you know, that reminder too that, especially as women of color um, and as queer women of color, we hold ourselves to these standards that were sometimes created for white men, you know, we're oftentimes created for white men who perhaps do need to really consider their guilt and their privilege in certain ways. Um, But, you know, we're already doing so much, so much. 
Yeah. And I think that, again, is something to acknowledge and to point out because because as women, I conditionally speaking, in terms of our, our conditioning, we are um, brought up to this with this expectation to shoulder a lot of responsibility, you know, for bringing up the new citizens of the world, the, you know, the children to, you know, be the emotional labor for people. Um, and so because we have that conditioned thinking, we need to, we, we, we believe that we need to do more to get up to the bar that is raised so high that it's, it's, it's not even a bar meant for us. Yes. So it's important to, to recognize that and to, and to be, like you said, to just like the fact that we exist is, is already a political act. <laughs> the fact that you show up for your job, you know, no matter what it is and you're breathing and you're, you know, you're doing your thing. It's, it's enough. Um, but I, I think about, I think about that, um, that role of being a Latina professor, um, in a predominantly white community. Whew. That's all I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. Like, what is that I appreciate like? your empathy. <laughs> what is that like? <laughs> you know, my situation is actually really wonderful um, because I have amazing, amazing colleagues. Absolutely. So I think if that were not true, then we would be having a different conversation. But I'm very, very fortunate, not only that I have um, colleagues who are really amazing, but who many of whom are outside of um, both in and outside of work committed to social justice. So that makes a huge difference. Um and then I would say beyond that, you know, for me, I'm just, um, I'm really happy that I get to do the work that I love, that I get to teach. So what I do is I teach creative writing. I forgot to say that I teach creative writing. And part of that is a large part of that is nonfiction, mm-hmm. um, including, you know, literary journalism, short essays, personal narrative memoir. Um, so I get to work with I get to work with writers who are trying to bring true stories, you know, or stories based on their true uh, events into being. So it's pretty, it's wonderful. It does have a lot of drawbacks <laughs> as well. Papers. <laughs> Say that again. I said grading all those papers. <laughs> yes. I actually, um, actually like I, so yeah there's so many so much that I could say about teaching I actually love grading papers um but I don't think about it as grading papers you know I my first career was in publishing and so I worked uh, as an editor with quite a number of writers over the years especially at Color Lines magazine so for Mm -hmm. me to be honest I just bring that approach to the classroom so for me I look at each piece like you're a writer trying to get published and I'm your little editor for the moment, you know? Yeah. That's a great way of framing it. I'll try that in the fall semester when I'm looking yeah. at it. <laughs> what's funny is that it has, it, that approach has like a, a, a little strange um, flip side to it, which is that students don't always want to publish their work and they're not, you know, they're not always thinking about that. And sometimes I've had so many moments where I get so excited about a student's work and I'm encouraging them to publish it or to pursue publishing. And they're like, no, this is just private. You know, I had one student, this was not at this university, it was at a different university. Um, so talented. I mean, this was just one of those writers who just pops out of the womb with so much talent. Mm. And she decided that, you know, writing was going to be a hobby for her. And I'm like, no, 
<laughs> you've got so much talent and you have so much to say your voice and you know and um and who knows you know where life will take her but the flip yeah. side is that when you're working at a magazine writers who are coming to you like they're interested in getting published like they right. know this is their work but with right. students so I've had to make quite some adjustments within my own <laughs> mind about you know how I how I talk with them and interact with them yeah, yeah, but sometimes that that encouragement stays with them, even though in that moment they may not, that's not what they intended, they're, they're still going to hear your voice. They can't unhear what you say. So maybe down the road, they'll find their way and say, oh my God, she was right the whole time, you know? That's a good point. You never know. So don't not say something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. They can't hear it. Yeah, no, I'm pretty loud. I say everything. <laughs> yeah, I don't have that much restraint of pen and tongue. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I, I, I was curious because you, you know, you started talking a little bit about the classroom. Do you bring any spirituality to your classroom? Because sometimes I do, depending on on the room. But I was just curious if that was just me. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting because that's something that I've been thinking about actually. Um. I bring spirituality to the classroom, I feel, in terms of how I hold the space, mm. um, how I talk with them about their writing. And some of that is spirituality and some of that is, um, you know, I had the great fortune many years ago to take classes at the Macondo Writers Workshop in Texas, which Sandra Cisneros had founded. and. That collective had come up with this compassionate code of conduct, which I kind of, which I adopted for my classes as well, um, especially for the workshop where we're giving each other feedback on on student work. And so I always try to keep the word compassionate at the forefront, like this is compassionate yeah. feedback. Um, so I do it like that. I have um, once upon a time. I, I'm trying to think where what classroom I did this in, but I did try. Um, leading them in not meditation, but I led them in sort of a yoga for writers. <laughs> and that was very fun. I don't think that I was like, I haven't done it again. Um, they were very resistant to it. Um, and, it, was, um, it was, it was a lot of, at the time, actually, I was, um, I've had a chronic pain condition and I really was on the other side of the worst of it. And, and so part of it for me as a writer, because it's chronic pain in my body and mostly my upper body. So I had just um, like meditation moves where you're sitting in your chair, but you're raising up like to pick, you know, an apple from the tree. Kind of, you know, it's so, like just stretches. It was very gentle. But especially with the male students, it was like they heard yoga and it was like, ah! you know, like they attached the feminine to yoga is my is what I understood from from the feedback that I got from them. Um, so they were quite, quite resistant to it. Um, yeah, so I'm trying to do it again during that semester. I have I did not try to do it again. But the reason that I didn't try to do it again is because I realized I was not coming from a place of feeling very confident. Mm both as I think I want to say that was probably like now that I'm thinking about it that was probably maybe my second year of teaching so okay. I was still very new in the classroom but also I kind of hated yoga actually I mean, it was a <laughs> terrible thing to say to a yoga person but like <laughs> really okay it's not I had this like, love-hate relationship with yoga where I was like wah, wah, I have to do this because I've got this chronic pain condition it's good like it's kind of like taking medicine yeah. um so I'm in a different place now with yoga so 
where now I'm starting to like yoga. I'm doing yoga on a daily. So I don't know. I'm in a different place. I'm also a much many year, more years into my teaching. Yeah, so I feel like now I would also be in a, yeah, I would be coming from a different place with it as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it, wasn't, yeah. it wasn't so much the student reactions as, as it was myself, you know, with yeah, my own confidence. Yeah. I think if I was in my second year teaching, I would not be like, hey, everyone, let's meditate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. they'd be looking at me like, who is this person? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I led a meditation for my students actually early at the beginning of the spring semester before this whole pandemic started. And um, because I could feel their stress, like the collective stress was really intense. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what is this generation growing up to be in terms of the amount of anxiety and stress that they're under in this in this environment that we created for them? So um, so. so it's funny because I had some male students who were totally willing and then some that were kind of resistant, but it was also some female students that were like, ah, this is weird. You know, I'm like, close your eyes. And they're like, you know, looking at me like, what? We're closing our eyes, you know? And I gave them the option that if they didn't feel comfortable just to gaze down at the floor, you know, but to go within. And, and so we did just breathing. That was it. We just did some breathing to get them to calm down. And, Afterwards, I was like, you guys can be honest with me. Like, you know, how how was the experience? And they're like, that was weird. <laughs> but I feel so good right now. And I'm like, aha. So um, so I think it's for me, it's it's been a, an, a nice experiment to try to bring spirituality into the classroom Not as spirituality like hey everyone. I want you to you know tap into the divine light within you <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's more like, let's just be still for a minute because we live in a world that's go, go, go and do, do, do. And when's the last time you can just be? And uh, I'm so glad you asked this because recently on NPR, I want to say it was on the 1A program, okay. they actually had someone lead a guided, do a guided meditation for just, I want to say a minute or two minutes. I don't, you know, I don't know. It felt very short, but I just thought, oh, this is so wonderful to be hearing this on national public radio. Yeah. Uh, guided meditation. I felt like, wow, we have really shifted. Yeah. Culturally. Yeah. That's happening right now. Yeah. And I think it's out of necessity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know? We don't we don't always come to the spiritual path because we're in a great place. <laughs> right. <laughs> we don't say, hey, I'm doing great. Oh, I'm just going to yeah. go check out that difficult path over there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> No, I don't think so. Um, so Daisy, this has been a really uh, great conversation. Um, I really loved hearing about your spiritual journey, but also how writing is weaved into it, how ultimately how your being is how you move through life. And, um, and that's a really wonderful example, not just for your students, but for anyone who's listening, anyone who's around you. Um, it's a really stellar example of being the example is the thing that will change the world. Yeah, uh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. And, and for those that are listening, you know, we don't have our dark moments. <laughs> Let's just make that clear. It's not all love and light. Um, but to, but to not beat yourself up with that stick, to be kind to yourself and to others, um, I think is really important. And especially during this time of national upheaval, um, it's even more important than ever to be compassionate and kind to ourselves as well as others. 
Um, and if you're feeling helpless, like you can't do anything um, to just reach out to somebody and let them know that you see them and that you care. Um, and that really makes a difference no matter, no matter who you are. Um, so Daisy, thank you so much for joining me. Um, to close our episode, do you have a poem you would like to share? Oh, I do. And this is an interesting close for our conversation. Um, I'll say that I'm not sure if the writer meant for this to be a poem, but uh, she is a poet, Mina Harshawala, and she shared this on social media yesterday. Mm. And, um, and I just love it. So I'm going to share this one with you. Yes, yes, I love Mina. I love the young woman walking out calmly with the whole cheesecake to share with her crew of freedom fighters. I love each and every black and brown and native and mixed person out on the streets marching peacefully and taking a stand in the face of tear gas, police violence, and threats of lethal force from the man in the White House and his mindless minions. I love all who cannot be on the streets, who are doing the invisible work of feeding, loving, listening to, funding, legally defending, and nurturing the frontline movement people. I love those who are just now waking up and asking questions about police abolition and systemic racism and state-sponsored violence, and those who have been doing the work for decades, who have so many answers ready and waiting for us. I love the white allies who are stepping up and using their privilege to form lines between police and black protesters and searching their souls to figure out how to be in true solidarity and take responsibility for the genocidal role of whiteness in our country. I love the handful of cops who are finally, finally taking a knee. I love you, my friends, for all that you are doing and being and feeling and attempting and writing and raging against and grieving and loving today. Mm, beautiful. Sounds like a poem to me, you know, Sounds if like you're a poem to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you shared that because I saw that also and it was just it was just um echoing what we were talking about, you know, like focusing on love and what you focus on, you grow more of. Absolutely. So, um so again, thank you so much, Daisy. I really appreciate you. you. I appreciate you for being um and to close our episode, the divine light in me bows to the divine light in you. Namaste. Until next time. Hello, loves. As you know, we're experiencing a really intense moment in our collective lives. The murder of George Floyd has sparked a blaze that's long been burning. And for many, it's overwhelming, full of grief, terror, fear, anxiety, and sadness. This Sunday, June 7th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, I'm offering a free sacred healing circle for people of color where we can gather in community and lay down our heaviness to release our not all rightness, if only for a few moments. When we work to release, we can feel expansive. We can restore and recharge so that we might continue to fight for justice. So come and care for yourself in this space. Visit suryagiyan.com slash free sacred healing circle to sign up. Your best self can change the world.